This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with clinical psychologist Jonah Paquette. Based in California, Dr. Paquette's work focuses on helping people achieve happier, more meaningful lives. He's the author of four books, Real Happiness and the Happiness Toolbox, and Happily Even After, Daily Practices to Recover Joy After Hardship, Heartache, and Heartbreak, and a book that I just read, Awestruck, How Embracing Wonder Can Make You Happier, Healthier, and More Connected. In addition to his writing and clinical work, Dr. Paquette provides training and consultation to organizations on the promotion of well-being, and he hosts the Happy Hour podcast. Jonah Paquette joins me today from Northern California. Welcome to the LifeSpeak podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here with you. How did happiness become the focus of your work? Good question. I was in uh, graduate school. It was kind of like right place, right time in the early 2000s, which was right around the time that, uh, you know, subfields of psychology and mental health, like positive psychology were starting to come into the fore, but it was very new. It was very fresh. And I remember at the time I was, you know, focusing so much on the traditional stuff that we all do in graduate school. If you're training to be a therapist in terms of, you know, psychopathology and diagnosing and different kinds of therapy. And I, I loved all that. And I still, you know, obviously practice a lot from that standpoint today, but I always had been fascinated with questions that were a little bit more existential, a little bit more humanistic, you know, questions around how do we build a good life? How do we live a life that's purposeful, that's meaningful, that's connected to things that matter to us? And that was very much lacking, I would say, in my initial experiences there. So it was this interest I had. And then it was kind of the perfect timing where right as I was in in my training, all of this incredible research started to come out on the benefits of things like gratitude and self-compassion and mindfulness practice and all those kinds of topics that just lit me up inside that got me really curious. So ever since then, that has been my real passion. I mean, I still work with many people in more sort of traditional psychotherapeutic modalities, but what I love to write about and speak about and, and talk to organizations and people about really is largely focused on how do we How do we live a a good life? How do we find happiness, well-being, and fulfillment during this time we have on earth? And of course, one of the ways that you talk about we can achieve happiness is by embracing or understanding or recognizing awe, feelings of awe. You've written a whole book on it called Awestruck. What exactly is awe? What, What does it mean to be awestruck? You know, I think it's one of those experiences that on the one hand, we, we know it when we feel it. We know it when we see it. Uh, and I, I find that when I say to people, think about the last time you felt this sense of awe and wonder, like people know what I mean. But when you're researching it and when you're writing about it, you do want to sort of define it in ways that are replicable and make sense. And so most of the research on awe talks about it being comprised of two separate but connected ingredients. Um, the first is that we encounter something that's vast, something that's bigger than us which interestingly can either be in the physical realm, like looking up at a night sky or an incredible mountain range, but also can be in the idea realm or the experiential realm. So things like, you know, an incredible piece of music or, you know, a a child taking their first steps, things like that, that where we feel small in the presence of something that's bigger than us, some force. The second piece is that there's something about the experience that, you know, forces us to challenge what we thought we knew. It forces us to readjust our assumptions in some core way. Um, so there's something expanding about it. There's something that, you know, yes, it's, it's this vast experience, but it's also an element of freshness, novelty, um, and excitement that's often associated with it. Those goosebumps, those tingles down our spine are often what we feel in those moments. 
does awe need to be something big? Could it be something small that maybe only you notice or you care about? I'm glad you asked that because that is probably the most important message I would want listeners to take home is that it's easy to hear this word awe and automatically jump to these very grand terms, these once in a lifetime flashbulb moments, right? That we're going to remember years from now. And while it's true that those powerful moments of awe can impact us in ways that are very profound and can even boost our mood for a couple of weeks on end, it turns out, according to the research and, you know, decrease things like inflammation in our body. Um, I think we'd be missing a lot if we thought of awe only in those terms. So what I always like to remind people of is, you know, we are surrounded by miracles, for lack of a better term, each and every day that we just sometimes forget are wondrous. I mean, you walk outside and you see leaves changing their color. You have moments of connection with people we care about. We have, you know, turn a flip, you know, flip a switch and light comes on, or we turn on a faucet and water comes out. And, you know, we walk around every day with a phone in our pocket, most of us, that has more computing power than what it took to launch those Apollo space missions decades ago. So I think we've become almost numb to the magic of life. And I think the most powerful change we can make is to find the wonder that surrounds us all the time, but that we so often miss. I mean, and listeners can even ask themselves, Look around wherever you are right now, wherever you're listening to this, whether you're on the road, whether you're sitting at home, taking a walk, and just notice how many things in your environment would be absolutely mind-blowing to someone even 50 years ago, let alone 500 years ago or 5,000 years ago or 50,000 years ago. So getting in touch with those incredible aspects of life can, can be just as or even more important in my mind. It's interesting because when you were describing how it feels to be awestruck. And the first things that came to mind were not things like sunsets and full moons and technology. It was just coincidences. Like, you know, I needed a repair done on something on a company was based, you know, way out, out of my city. And the person wrote me back and said, actually, our repair person lives two doors down from you <laughs> and can fix that. And that I was awestruck about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Can you talk a bit about how experiencing feelings of awe is good for us? What, what are the benefits? Yeah, this was one of the most, I think, interesting and in some ways surprising elements of my experience of writing the book, Awestruck, was just learning how incredibly powerful and beneficial these experiences are for us. Um, you know, I think I'd always looked at these moments as you know, pretty cool moments, right? Uh, you look at a gorgeous sunset or the night sky and you're like, wow, this, I feel so small and connected to something bigger than me. But I think what really made me very passionate about this topic was seeing how much these experiences can change us. Um, and there are mental health impacts that this has. There are interpersonal effects that experiencing awe has on us. There's even very, you know, brain-based and physiological effects of awe. And I'll just, you know, run through a couple. There's obviously more than, I don't want to bore listeners by reading the laundry list, but, you know, what we know is socially, one of the biggest effects of awe is that we feel very connected to the world around us. That when we experience these moments, we feel closer to our fellow human beings. We feel more con compassionate, more pro-social. So that's just an incredible replicated finding that's, you know, I think really important connection and compassion go up. From a mental health standpoint, we see reductions in things like stress and anxiety, boosts to our mood, some of which can last even a couple of weeks during, you know, following powerful moments of awe. Uh, there's even been some research looking at the effects on things like post-traumatic stress disorder and showing that even PTSD symptoms over time decrease the more that we experience this emotion. 
And then there's really cool things that happen within our body, within our nervous system. And I think probably the biggest one I'd want to share is, you know, we hear a lot about things like chronic inflammation and different foods that we eat and so forth, you know, can impact things like chronic inflammation. And, you know, chronic is the bad one. Short term, that's good. We're healing injuries, wounds, but chronic inflammation, that's what's linked to things like depression and stroke risk and high blood pressure and even Alzheimer's over time. So chronic inflammation gets increased by like prolonged, intense, negative emotional states. And it can actually be decreased by, you know, fostering positive states of well-being. But of all the positive emotions that were, have been studied, all was shown to actually be linked to the largest reductions in these markers of inflammation. So as that continues to be something that we learn about, you know, that has big, profound effects, I would say, for not only our mental health, but also our physical health and other areas of our lives. So mind, body, inside and out, so many benefits that come from experiencing this, this emotion. When was the last time that you were awestruck? I, I like to separate, and I write a little bit of the, about this in my book, which is the um, you know capital A awe versus lowercase a awe, which is not a technical term, listeners. But uh, you know, I, I do like to differentiate between sort of the small moments versus the big ones. I would say a small one was just doing a webinar not too long ago. And having this realization that we had participants there from all around the United States, even Europe, we had one participant from South America. And I just had this realization of, you know, speaking in real time through a screen to people that were located thousands of miles away and just being not only in awe of the technology, but also of the sort of just the the capacity of humans to connect in this way um, here in 2023. So, you know, I think for all the downsides that we sometimes attribute to things like technology and social media, I think there's, there's actually incredible gifts that it can give us as well. So that was definitely a, a little moment of awe for me. And then I think the other was um, not too long ago going out and doing some stargazing because that's kind of a hobby that I, that I love to do out here and going out to different dark sky locations and, you know, just looking up and seeing this was about a week back. Um, the you know light coming in th- through my retina—that's you know so many thousands of light years away—and you know realizing that everything in my body is made up of you know exploding supernovas, stars like the ones that I'm looking overhead, and that there's more stars out up above than there are grains of sand on Earth, according to some measures, which is just incredible to wrap your head around. So you know those are the moments where I feel truly small, minuscule, yet connected to something really important, something much bigger than myself. Uh, so those are two recent, you know, one big, one small, I would say, that uh, situations that come to mind for me. You talk in the book about how, you know, one of the things that awe does, it takes you out of yourself and ma- makes you more connected to others around you. But I wanted to ask, do you think that awe has more power, more benefits when it's a shared experience? I think it can, yeah. I mean, I think one of the interesting things is that even when it's a solitary experience, we still feel very connected to others, which I think is kind of a cool, cool thing about awe that even if I'm experiencing it alone, you see things like, you know, the release of oxytocin and these other feelings of connection to others, to the world around us. So it's a very collective, it's a very binding emotion. But I do think when we can find ways, you know, either with intention or even accidentally to have these sort of collective moments of awe, whether it was, you know, I always think back to looking up at the, this incredible eclipse that we had a few years back and just you know, you could hear a pin drop even around crowds of hundreds of people, that there's something magical about experiencing these incredible moments surrounded by people sharing, you know, watching a, an amazing musical or athletic performance, shared moments of ritual or prayer, um, you know, being in nature and sort of connecting and seeing the faces on, you know, on people as they experience this, this incredible moment. So 
I do think for a number of reasons, um, yeah, that, that the experience itself can get amplified as many of our experiences do when they're shared with others. The other thing that that allows us to do is to really savor these moments of awe. Um, you know, if I have an experience that's just my own, it can be magical. It can be great. But if I have that with somebody else, it becomes something that we talk about, we reminisce over, we reflect on, we share as that memory. And, you know, when we think about things and we talk about things and we picture them, right, which other people can help us do when, we, when there's these shared experiences, it actually activates a lot of the same reactions in our brain, body, nervous system is like when that experience was actually happening. So I think for that reason, too, we can get more out of these moments when they are shared uh, oftentimes. And that's true, by the way, of many different positive emotional states that we share with others is when it becomes something that's not just within us, but between us. Um, it can be that much more magical. What would you say is the difference between awe and happiness? Is it awe that leads us to feel joy and happiness? Probably a good question because you know, I think just to, to define happiness, because that's a word that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, obviously. Um, and I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the word, even though it's in the title or the subtitle of most of my books, because I think it can seem on the surface to be a little bit kind of clunky uh, or unwieldy. But you know, I think when we're talking about really what we mean by this question of happiness. We're talking about a combination of typically three separate but connected ingredients. The first is has to do with our emotional states. This is what's called, you know, hedonic happiness. So feeling good, you know, on a day-to-day moment-to-moment level. More positive emotional states than than negative, so to speak. The second ingredient is more about life satisfaction, or they call this evaluative happiness, kind of a jargony term, but it basically means like how satisfied am I with my life when I step back and look at things as a whole. And the third has to do with meaning and purpose and connection to something that's bigger than us. Um, you know, whether that's family, faith, community, uh, the work that we do and so forth, they call this eudaimonic happiness, uh, maybe the most jargony of all those terms. So feeling good, feeling satisfied and feeling a sense of meaning. You know, one of the things I like about that flexible definition of happiness is it's very, uh, it's very flexible again to, to both the individual as well as sort of cultural backgrounds. There's people around the world, you know, that value, for example, on average, some ingredients more than others. But this allows us to be really, you know, I think attuned to that and also recognize that even within those groups of people, there's going to be a ton of variability. And, you know, for some, we all need some combination of those three, but what that exactly looks like, the, the ratio, so to speak, may vary and does vary person to person. To your question of like the relationship between awe and happiness, to me, um, you know, I tend to think of sort of, so that's the result, those three ingredients of happiness. And then how do we get there? Because we know on the one hand, it's good to be happy. On the other hand, we know that the more we obsess over becoming happy, research shows we actually become less happy. So that's a bit of a paradox. What we know is that the more that we can cultivate the types of states, the types of experiences, the types of skills and strategies and tools for happiness, things like gratitude and experiencing awe, social connection, uh, self-compassion, kindness towards others. You know, I, I write about 10 or 12 of these in my, in my books. That's what leads to happiness. And so what I would say with awe is experiencing awe can be one of the most powerful ways to increase our sense of happiness. And something I find interesting about is it taps into each of those three dimensions. When we experience awe, it boosts our mood, and many studies have shown that. It also changes our perspective and makes us feel more satisfied with our lives. So it shifts, you know, things, the small stuff doesn't seem as important anymore. 
we feel more connected to things that matter. So life satisfaction increases. And it's also been shown to really increase that sense of meaning because there's something very magical about experiencing these moments. Um, they feel very special. They feel very as brief as they can. We feel connected to something far bigger than ourselves. And so, you know, I think it's one of the, the most powerful ways for that reason. That's one of the things that got me really inspired to write the book is that it's a, you know, it taps into each of those three very important dimensions for happiness. I always think it's interesting that we have this feeling that somehow happiness is something that we achieve, that one day we'll be happy. If we do X, Y, and Z, we will achieve happiness. But that's not really what happiness is. Happiness is sort of an ongoing daily goal that we strive for, but it isn't just the one day I'll get everything I want and I'll be happy. It's an, it's something we have to work at every single day and it's okay not to feel happy every moment of the day. Yes. I think we, we sometimes, yeah, we have a, a bunch of misconceptions about it that get in our way. Uh, the first being that happiness will be this end result of certain things happening. We even tell these stories to ourselves of, you know, when this happens, I'll be happy. Or when I achieve this goal, that's when I'll be happy. Or when I get a new job or meet a different person or get a different boss or you know, whatever it might be, if then, if then, if then. And it doesn't really work like that. It's much more the result of these sort of sustained and practiced skills and habits and mindsets and attitudes like the ones that we've talked about here that lead us to be happier. And then the, the second piece to your point that I think is so important to remind people is you know, happiness does not mean you don't experience pain, hardship, adversity, loss. What it means is that we're fostering states of mind in spite of those experiences. Um, you know, we have this negativity bias in our brain, right? Where uh, Rick Hansen is a great person for listeners to look up. He says that it's like Teflon for good things and Velcro for bad things, which is a quote I love. Um, you know, so we fixate on that for survival reasons. We're wired that way for a reason, but it makes it hard to feel content. It makes it hard to feel happy. And so I think we're going to have the ups and downs of life. What we want to learn is how to not get stuck in that state of rumination, in that state of you know, negative emotional experiences, where we can kind of develop our capacity to see the fuller picture, to foster social connections, to notice the wonders that surround us, to, to appreciate the good, which doesn't mean we don't feel the bad. So I think sometimes people will even ask me, like, so does that mean you're happy all the time, Jonah? And I said, no, definitely not. It means that I work bit by bit over time to become happier tomorrow than I am today. But, you know, we want to feel our full emotional state. That's a good thing. There's a reason we were, you know, given all these emotions, so to speak, um, you know, through our evolutionary experience. It serves a function. It just tends to be overlearned oftentimes, and we want to find ways to balance that. Why do you think it's so hard for many of us, and I would say probably even most of us, to really recognize genuine moments of happiness or to appreciate them? I think we are very conditioned to sort of look for happiness as more from the outside. So the result of things, I think our values are often sort of skewed to things that don't make, you know, we think happiness will come as the result of, of, of these external things. And I think oftentimes when we stop and realize that actually like are happy. I think most people are actually pretty intuitive about this. And I, I just want to point that out. I think like the problem is we get so consumed with social comparison, with sort of note, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves of how happiness will be achieved. But I think when you ask people, what have been some of those moments in life where you felt most content, when you felt most connected to things that matter, when you felt good about who you were and how you were living, 
most of the time, I think people do have a better sense than they think about sort of, yes, this was when I was doing work that mattered, or I was, you know, in a relationship that was satisfying, or I was doing, you know, contributing to a cause that I believed in, or I was, you know, volunteering, you know, people do have a good sense of this, but I think we're so conditioned to think that happiness comes from these very big, vast sort of positive experiences that are outside of us, as opposed to the reality, which is that it's more of an inside job. It's through the development and the cultivation of states of mind and attitudes and mindsets and skills that, you know, I think the good news is all of us can develop. I think that's something I always like to point out to people is when you think about these ingredients of happiness, and we've talked about a few, but it, you know, self-compassion and kindness towards others and forgiveness and acceptance and mindfulness and gratitude and awe. Like on the one hand, these are not easy. We can't snap our fingers or take a pill and, you know, just have them. On the other hand, each and every one is buildable and growable. And it's a, these are skills, these are practices, inner states of being that each and every listener can become a little bit better at you know, tomorrow than maybe you are today and a year from now than, than you are right now. And so you know, through that deliberate practice, we can all, in my mind, become happier over time uh, bit by bit. I want to come back to this and how we potentially build those skills. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask you about something that I thought was really interesting. And you say that not all awe is positive. Mm, In fact, awe actually comes from, I didn't know this, this was interesting, the Norse word for terror or flight. Uh Um, You have this fantastic story that you give about a bear, (laughs) a confrontation that you and your wife had with a bear, which I'd love for you to tell. But, you know, things like 9-11, challenger disasters, those are awestruck moments, but they are not positive moments. So can you talk a little bit about that? So, yeah, I think it's important if we think back even to that definition of awe earlier, where we talked about, you know, I'm experiencing, I'm encountering something that's vast, something that's bigger than me, and that I struggle to wrap my head around. It forces me to like rethink things on a certain level. Uh, It challenges my assumptions and so forth. You know, that's not actually, if you think about it, a, um, an inherently positive, it's actually kind of a neutral definition, right? And you can imagine things that would fit into that category of being bigger than me and, and, you know, challenging what I thought I knew that would be pretty unpleasant even. And, uh, yeah, I talk about this experience of, we were hiking at beautiful Glacier National Park, which, um, is one of, yeah, one of the most breathtaking places that, uh, that we've ever traveled. We were backpacking, we were deep in the wilderness. We turned a blind curve, like in the trail aside the, t- the side of the mountain and it all happened very quickly. I can still remember. We looked up to our left and we saw one of the cutest sights that we've ever seen. It was these three extremely cute, adorable grizzly bear cubs that were like wrestling and roly poly on the side of the hill. And for like a split second, it was this, uh, you know, just, just adorable scene. And then within about half a second, it was like, oh my goodness, wait, we're seeing these cubs here. What else is nearby? We looked a little bit over to the left and we saw this very large, imposing grizzly mama that was a couple hundred feet away from us at this point. She looked at us, she looked at her cubs, she looked at us, and then she came just sprinting down the hill full speed. And they can actually run faster than horses, which I didn't realize until I saw it with my own eyes. So she comes sprinting down the hill. We're about to collapse to the ground. I try to reach for my bear spray, by the way, of course, but by the time my brain even said to my hand to to reach back there, um, it was too late. So she was right about to be on top of us. We're about to go to the ground and try to play dead because at that point, that's all you can do. And then she goes on her hind legs. She gets really big and then just stops, turns around and goes back up the hill. 
So for me, it was a very awe-inspiring experience in hindsight of just how you know the speed and the ferocity of this incredible animal, the protectiveness of this mom for her babies, um, the fact that she could in real time figure out and work out whether we were actually a threat versus not, all in a split second. There was a lot that sort of was awe-inspiring, and yet I hope to not repeat that experience uh, again anytime soon or ever. So you think about these other experiences, whether it's natural disasters, whether it's you know some of the horrible things that, that, that you mentioned as well, you know those can evoke a sense of awe, but it's you know much more negative threat based. And in surveys, around fifteen percent of people, when you ask them when's the last time you felt awe, they don't give you positive answers. I mean, we, we tend to give positive answers because that's I think how we tend to think about this word these days. But not all awe is positive. And just a quick note on so-called negative awe or threat based awe. Whether it's watching footage of a, you know wildfires or volcanoes or 9/11 or whatever, is most of the positive outcomes that we've talked about don't happen as a result of negative awe. Um, those are more in the domain of positive awe. But it does, interestingly enough, still do two things for us. It brings us closer to our fellow human beings, and it makes people kinder. So even after these very you know negative, never want to repeat them again, wouldn't wish them upon your enemy. Uh, negative all experiences, people do feel more associated, affiliated with the group, and they um, do tend to become more pro-social, kinder, uh, more giving, which I think is just a really interesting phenomenon there too. Well, I want to talk a bit about how to build the skill of awe or recognizing it. Um, You offer a lot of exercises and tools, and there's a lot of different ones, and you don't have to do all of them. But (laughs) can you talk a little bit about some of the ones that maybe you that work very well for you or that you see work very well for other people? As you said in my book, I think I have probably about 60 or 65 just suggestions and they're everything from visualization exercises to, to prompts to small practices that people can, can engage in. Um, for one thing, I just would remind us all that you know, awe is a very personal experience. It's a very individual experience, not, not, not in the sense that we can't share it with others, but what gives me a sense of awe may give you like a shrug. I remember when I moved to California, I was just blown away by the redwood trees. And I had never seen anything like that coming from New York and these giant redwoods that are, you know, 350 feet tall and over a thousand years old. And I was just, you know, infatuated with them. But then when I had my friend visit from New York and I'm taking him on this walk around the woods, he looks over to me after about 15 minutes and I was sure that he was just loving his experience. He looks over to me and says, so is there anything else to see here besides the trees? <laughs> so he was not impressed. Um, and yet, you know, there's, there's bands, there's musical acts that like give him a sense of awe that for me, I think, you know, kind of stink. So, you know, it's a very personal experience in that way. With that said, you know, I think the first thing people can maybe think to themselves is with the best predictor of future behavior being past behaviors, what has given you that experience in the past? What have been the domains of life? Are you someone who experiences this, this more in nature? Are you someone who experiences this more through, you know, learning uh, incredible facts about the world and just expanding your mind in that way? Is it through music? Is it through the arts? Is it architecture? Is it inspiring people, right? Is it learning about people that are you know, changing the world and making the world a better place? That can be a great source of awe. In fact, in many parts of the world, that's the number one source of awe that people report is other people, like other people's courage, their humanity, their conviction, and so forth. So asking yourself, like, what is, what is it that gives me this feeling even in the past is often the, the best place to start. Then I would say, you know, obviously anything in nature, I write a lot about nature, 
because we know that that is one of the most powerful sources of awe for many people. But that doesn't mean you have to go, you know, to the wilderness for five weeks on end. Like this can be just going to a nearby park and just noticing small things like the colors of the grass, the textures, birds, you know, whatever it is, like spending 10 or 15 minutes can be plenty. Uh, going on an awe walk, right, can be a great thing where you just leave your phone behind. You don't listen to a podcast, except for this one, of course, you can listen to this one. And just notice how many things surprise you, how many things that you didn't notice in the past actually stand out to you. What are the, you know, the beautiful things that you can just make note of and observe and experience? That's, I think, just a very sort of simple thing that we could do 10 minutes a day and just start to notice the wonders that are around us. A little like we did earlier, too, is a great thing where we can just step back and say, wherever I find myself periodically, let's pause and just notice how many things surround me just in my experience, just in my field of vision that actually are pretty magical, but that I sometimes forget are that, right? How many things that we take for granted are actually profound? And I think one of the most you know, powerful ways to instill a sense of awe is exactly through that. So those are like three simple ways. And of course, you know, thinking about the different outlets, whether it's through the arts, whether it's through music, architecture, nature, inspiring people. I mean, I think there's no shortage. And I think if I could give one message, it's really just to remind ourselves that these moments, brief as they can feel, can impact us in really profound ways. And second, that these experiences are often so much more around us than we realize. And I think if we leave here you know, today after this conversation and just Notice small things that we would have normally missed. See the special qualities and the things we take for granted. Notice the the miracles that exist in the mundane, so to speak. Um, we'll be on our way. I I like you give an example of looking back even at a box of old photos and in that moment feeling awe just of maybe mm-hmm. how far you've come or how much insight you now have looking back at a situation that that even that can can inspire feelings of being awestruck. Yeah, I think the passage of time in, in various forms um, can lead us feeling that way, whether it's like holding old objects, looking at old photos, sort of recognizing our own growth, but also like visiting sites that are ancient, right? That, that sort of remind us of our, the brief time that we get to, to spend here on earth. You know, I, I often actually think about that, of like the fact that the odds of existing right here and right now, of us having this conversation, of any of us having consciousness in this moment is really as close to zero as you get without being zero. The chances are infinitesimal. And yet here we are, you and I having this conversation, listeners listening to this conversation, us breathing, having consciousness, being alive. We're not supposed to be here by any statistical measure, right? Everything had to line up just so for us to even exist in this moment. And yet here we are. And I think when we remind ourselves that in the billions of years of you know, our history as a universe. And years ago, we wouldn't have been around. Years from now, we won't be. To have consciousness and exist in this moment can be really powerful to, to get in touch with. So that time perspective, I think, can evoke a lot of feelings of awe as well. What would you say to people who maybe think that there's just too many tragic things mm. going on? I mean, you know, there's war, there's environmental issues, there's inflation. Sometimes it feels like happiness and awe, I suppose, that it's it's a privilege and maybe not something we deserve to be feeling right now. What do you what would you say to that? Yeah, I'm always actually struck by so many of the, I think, great proponents of experiencing this emotion have often been in some of the, the worst hardships imaginable. I mean, in, in Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl talks about experiencing this sense of wonder and awe and amazement, even amidst the, the atrocities of the concentration camps. And I think the message 
really is actually like not that those problems don't exist because there have always been atrocities in the world tragically right i mean right right now they're very magnified because of things that may be happening as well as just our capacity to have them spread via social media but you know for thousands of years there's been sadly no shortage of pain hardship heartache murder you know every every horrible thing in the book and yet i think when we a acknowledge that you know life is is a paradox it is both incredibly hard incredibly painful for many people and yet beautiful right that, that these two truths exist at the same time that life can be incredibly unfair and yet also incredibly magical right these are these are both true and i think one of the problems that we fall into is because of the way that we're wired to be attuned to threat to notice negative things far more impactfully than positive ones is we get very stuck and only see one side of the coin and what i always like to remind people of is no message, hopefully, when it comes to happiness is to say, like, turn that frown upside down. Just think happy. You know, that's sort of like the, the toxic positivity stuff. What we're really talking about is, can we find meaning, connection, belonging, small moments of joy, even when life is difficult for ourselves and those around us, even when life is hard? And one of the things that we know is, like, the more that we can do that, actually, we actually become better citizens, better partners, better you know, parents, better children, uh, better people, better employees. Like if we can find that, that opportunity to foster our own well-being, we actually show up in all those other roles that matter to us that much more effectively. And so I would invite people who do find themselves thinking that, but who care about the world, who care about treating people well, who care about making a positive difference. I would invite them to remind themselves that actually one of the best things you can do to be there for others and to make a positive impact is by attending to your own needs, is by attending to your own well-being, because the more that you do that, the better at all of those roles that you become. What keeps you feeling hopeful and optimistic? In, in my personal life or in life in the world and during, during these terrible times? What, whatever or, <laughs> comes to mind. Whatever comes to mind. A few things. Number one, I think this is not me as a psychologist, this is me as a person, but I was a history major in college. And I think one of the um, advantages of that of studying for you know history for thousands of years. Not that I'm thousands of years old, by the way, listeners, but history of thousands of years, is that it does put even terrible things in the here and now into a little bit of a different context. It, it in no, ma- no way makes them better, but it also kind of allows you to see that while there have always been these incredible atrocities, there's actually been immense progress immense progress for the individual, immense progress for communities, for the world, with, of course, granted many problems that remain, right? Those are, again, not mutually exclusive. But I think seeing how things like, you know, diseases that used to wipe us out, the, the level of warfare, the number of people that would die prematurely, childbirth rates or child and infant mortality rates, I should say, education levels, poverty, and all, all the rest. There has been so much of that, but I think the message shouldn't be, let's rest on our laurels. It's rather to say, you know, when people put their mind to things and actually act from a place of compassion and love for their fellow human beings, amazing things can happen and have happened, which again, doesn't mean the problems don't remain, but I think that gives you fuel to keep going, if anything. On a personal level, I think it really has been trying to be more present, trying to notice that even in the different, and this is, I think, some combination of awe, gratitude, mindfulness, you know, however you want to conceptualize it, but I think slowing down and recognizing just how special it is to be alive at times, even during the hard moments, 
to get in touch with the beautiful things that surround me each and every day, you know, with other people and nature and so forth, I think also gives me sort of that, that, that sense of vitality, that sense of optimism and hope in, in my, on a more humble scale in my own life. Clinical psychologist Jonah Paquette has been my guest today on the LifeSpeak podcast. Jonah, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast.